Isaiah 61, verse number one. The Bible said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to them that are bound. Aren't you glad for the day the Lord shut up to your prison? <laughs> he didn't just show up. He had the keys too. He said, hey, if you'll just follow me, I can get you out of here. Well, I'm glad for the day the Lord showed up in my life, took me out of the bondage of sin, took me out of the prison of sin and gave me a new life and gave me a new start, set my feet upon the solid rock of the word of God, set my feet, set my feet upon him this morning. And can I say he's never let me down? He's always been faithful. Verse number two, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Boy, I'm glad this morning God can do what I can't. <laughs> um, so many times I feel so inadequate, so many times I feel like I did not say the right thing at the right time to the right person. And I'm glad God knows how to comfort all of us this morning. Verse number three, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and that he might be glorified. Let's pray this morning to Heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We ask you, Lord, this morning that you work in each and every, every individual heart that's here this morning. God, deal with us on a personal level, Lord. Lord, that's, we know that's how you deal with us, and we ask you to do that this morning. Help us respond accordingly. God, help us to have our, our ears open, but our hearts open too. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you do a work in people's hearts that, God, I cannot do. But, Lord, I know that you can this morning. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as a personal Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, today would be the day that, Lord, by faith, they'd come to you, Lord, and you'd save them by your grace. Lord, you'd walk into their prison this morning and tell them, hey, there's a way out. And, God, would you show them the way this morning? And we ask you, Lord, this morning that you'd just speak to our hearts. I ask, Lord, that you hide me behind the cross of Calvary. God, would you get me out of myself, Lord, and fill me with your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, this morning that you're faithful. And God, you love us with a love that is unstoppable. Lord, even at points unbelievable. But yet, Lord, we experience it. We know it to be true. We ask you, Lord, this morning that you just help us one more time. God, give us what we need for the hour that we're in. Give us what we need to prepare for what might be next in our life. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. I want you to look at verse number three this morning. There's a little phrase in there and the Lord used it to work a message in my heart this week of after the week that we've experienced as a church family gone through and uh, dealt with and just kind of been taking it step by step. And I do thank God for my church family this morning. I'm thankful this morning for those that were able to come and be a, a help and encouragement to those that are struggling right now. And I know not everybody can get off work. I know not everybody can do that. But thank you if you couldn't be there that you at least prayed for us. We're grateful for that this morning. But I want you to look at verse number three this morning. There's, a, there's three words in there that God began to work in my heart, a message for this morning, for our church this morning. I'm not preaching to anybody. We're going to put it on the, on the internet. We're going to put it out in the, in the world wide web this morning. But reality is I'm not preaching to the world this morning. I'm preaching to South Haven Baptist Church. I'm preaching to myself this morning. And I'm preaching to you this morning. Preacher, is this message for me? Yes, it is. We was at Revival uh, one night this week and Brother Daniel Walker preached and he made it a statement in his 
message about how we ought not to stand off to the side and say, tell them, preacher, sick them, preacher. That's for them. And so after the service was done, I walked over to Brother Ty, and I said, Brother Ty, that message was for you. And uh, joking and, and laughing with him. But this morning, this, the message is for all of us this morning. But look there in verse number three, three words, beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. And I've been working on that thought and that, 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 that subject of the word ashes. And I did what any Bible scholar would do. I turned to my concordance. And I, I, I clicked on the, 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 the number that you're supposed to click on to give you the definition. And so I clicked on the definition of ashes and it said ashes. And I thought that doesn't help me out too much. But then underneath it, there was another definition. It said, figuratively speaking, worthless. Of no worth, of no value, of no great uh, greatness, of nothing really good out of it. We think about it this way. If all you have left is ashes, you really don't have much left, do you? Because if all you have left in your life or what it feels like you have left is nothing but ashes, something's happened. And maybe it means something that was once on fire. It was once fervent. It was once a great heat. It was once burning bright and burning well. Now it's burned out. All you're left is with a pile of ashes. The weather dropped about 20 degrees these past few days and one picture after another, after another came up through on the Facebook feed and it was so-and-so was having a bonfire, so-and-so was having a bonfire, so-and-so was having a bonfire and no doubt I'm not against bonfires. I enjoy them. I, I'm thankful for this time. I thank the Lord it's starting to cool off. But nobody goes the next day and takes a picture of what is left after the bonfire because it's just ashes. Just ashes. What was once burning is now burned out. Or if all you're left with is ashes this morning, something's burned down. Something's burned down this morning. Think about a house burning down and the fire department can't get there and they can't put it out and they, they, can't, they can't save it in enough time. And you walk upon the property and there was a place that was once full of love was once full of joy, it was once full of peace. It's where your memories were made, it was where your, your kids grew up, it was where your family lived. And all you're left with is ashes. We look at those times in certain situations where we all we're left with was ashes and we're thinking to ourselves, why? Why now, why like this? Why did this have to happen to me? Why, am all I, why is it all that I'm left with right now is nothing but a handful of ashes? And I was curious, I understood my concordance said they're worthless, that they are, in essence, there's no great value to them. They don't bring great joy to our life. And so I Googled it, is there anything you can do with ashes? And I came across a website, 15 things you can do with ashes. I begin to read those things, and I didn't list them all out here this morning, but here's what you can do. You can take ashes and you can place them in your compost pile. You can take ashes and lay them across an icy road to give you traction. You can take ashes and you can mix them up with water to make lye and through lye with other chemicals and other different ways you can produce soap. You can place them on spills to absorb the liquid. And 
I quickly thought, well, see there. There, you can do something with ashes. And then I was reminded, really, all you're doing is taking them from one place and putting them somewhere else. In essence, there's not much you and I can do with ashes. We can take them from here and put them there and hope it helps. We can take them from there and put them there and hope it does something. But here in Isaiah, we're told that there is something that God can give to me and you that which we desire and we might call worthless. We might look at it and say, there's no good coming out of this. There's no rhyme or reason for it to happen this way in my life. And yet God says, hold on a second. If you give me your ashes, I can give you beauty. I can give, now you look that up, that talks about something that adorns the crown, the headdress of somebody. It is something that me and you look back and say, my goodness, that's something, that's something wonderful, that's something great, and yet God is saying, hey, if you'll just let me work for a little bit, I can take your ashes. In exchange, I can give you beauty. I believe every Christian can trust God to give them beauty for their ashes by noticing how he did it in the word of God. This morning we're looking at three places in the Old Testament where we find either a man or a woman or in a certain circumstance that the word ashes are mentioned and how God used those ashes to bring out something beautiful. He exchanged that which me and you would say, why? This doesn't make any kind of sense. I don't see any good coming out of this. How God can take a moment in a situation like that and give you something beautiful. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Job. Job chapter number two this morning. Job chapter number two in verse number eight. And we'll be flipping through the Bible this morning. I hope you brought it to church. If not, there's one in the pew that you can borrow. But I'd always encourage you to bring your Bible to church. Amen. That way you can back up what the preacher's saying. I'm a, just a man. I might get, get stray sometimes, but the word of God never will. But we're here in Job chapter number two this morning. Verse number eight, Job's a very familiar uh, account in the word of God. Matter of fact, as we was going through the pandemic, while y'all was at home sitting on the couch watching church, I was in here preaching through the book of Job. And I'd go home and I'd sit on my couch and watch me preach on the book of Job. Can I say that's something awkward to do? Most preachers don't like, I don't like hearing myself preaching the sentence. I don't like having to go through the court. I think, man, did I really say that? Did I, really, did I really stumble that bad? Do I say that word that many times while I'm preaching? I don't, I, I, listen, I can tell you that we were taking count how many times I either say it this morning or this evening. Well, I know that I say it a lot. But then you got only that to hear yourself. Now I got to see myself. I make that face while I'm preaching. I look that crazy while I'm preaching. I remember there was one message in there. I was almost all the way done recording it and I sneezed. And it was, I saw I was not fixing to re-record that. So in, my, in y'all's living room, I sneezed for you. But Job chapter number two, verse number eight, the Bible says, right here it says, and he took him a pot shirt, a piece of clay, to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. He sat down among the ashes. Now, the New Testament tells us that I believe it's in the book of James, we ought to strive, we ought to desire to have the patience of Job. And we like to think that Job's patience was him just simply waiting on God. And I guess if you break it down in essence, in principle, that's what Job was doing. He was waiting, one, to hear from God, and he was waiting for God to move. But Job just wasn't sitting in the comfort of his house. Job wasn't just sitting in the comforts of life. Job was sitting in the midst of suffering 
patiently waiting for God to move in his life. Job suffered physically. He lost everything that he had. But he also lost his health. That's why here in verse number eight, he is sitting there in the ashes and he's got a pot shirt and I'm not trying to gross you out this morning, but his body has become covered with boils and he's trying his best to get a moment's relief from that great pain that is in his body and he's scraping those things off of him and he's trying to fix his situation and he, he realizes that which he has within his possessions is not adequate to fix the situation. You ever been there in your Christian life you go in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a valley, and then you realize that which you have of yourself, that which you possess of your own, is not enough to fix the situation. You'll say things like this, boy, if I just had the money, I'd pay anything right now for this to be fixed. If I just knew the right person, I would do whatever they said for this problem to be solved. Job suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. Verse number nine what does Job's wife tell them to do? Curse God and die. In essence, she looked at her husband and said, Job, there ain't nothing that you can do. There ain't nothing left for you to do. I think God's done with you, Job. Just curse him and die. She probably didn't like the situation that he's seen her husband in. But then we read in the book of Job's that Job's friends show up. And boy, if you do anything in your life, strive to not have friends like Job. The Bible says they came down, I think seven days, they stared at him. They watched him. Then they tried to sympathize with him. They threw dust in the air. Job wasn't sitting in dust. Job was sitting in ashes. Then they said, well, Job, if you just get right with God, this would all go away. Job, there's some hidden sin in your life, Job, that God's judging you for. If you just get it right, everything would be a-okay, Job. He suffered emotionally. Could you imagine the doubt that must have brought into Job's mind and Job's heart? Maybe I have failed God. Maybe, maybe I, uh, God is punishing me because I've done some great wickedness. And yet if you read Job chapter one, you know that's not the case. Job was a righteous man. He's perfect in all his ways. He was mature. Job was the Christian who for 20, 30 years served God faithfully and did everything the Bible said to do. And then in the midst of all that, everything falls apart. For somebody to walk in to say, well, you know, if he was right with God, none of that would happen. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered spiritually. Go read the book of Job. There's some times where Job said, it would have been better if I'd never been born. But notice where we find Job. Chapter number two, he's sitting in the ashes. Let me ask you this morning, where those ashes come from? And why was Job sitting in the midst of them. If you read the prior chapter, chapter number one, you'll find out those ashes probably came from one of two places. It might have came from when the fire fell out of heaven in verse number eight of Job chapter number one. I said, the Lord said unto Satan, excuse me, I'm in the wrong, wrong portion there. Verse 18, verse, it's somewhere in there. I wrote down the wrong thing. There it is, verse 16, sorry. Double, double number eight. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed thee. And I am only escaped alone to tell thee. Job could have very well been sitting in those ashes. But I personally believe Job was sitting in verse number five's ashes. Where, where are those at, preacher? Where are those at? Look at verse number five of chapter number one. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, 
that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings. Offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all, for Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. I think Job was sitting in the middle of the ashes of that which he had offered to God on behalf of his children. So there he's got a pot shirt in one hand, scraping his, his boils on his body. He's being uh, questioned and, 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 and being almost ridiculed by his friends. His wife is giving up on him. I believe in Job's life we see the ashes of brokenness. Here's a man who's had it all. Here's a man that was doing right. Here's a man that, that was striving not just to serve the Lord for himself, but to set the example for his children. And now he's sitting in ashes. Preacher, how does anything beautiful come out of that? What's the beauty of those ashes? First of all, this morning, Job's understanding of who God was greatly grows to this entire ordeal. Now, Job knew who the Lord was prior to all this. You look at Job, he's wealthy. He's got great means. He's got a great family. He's got many goods. He's got a great testimony. I believe Job could have said, I'm one blessed man. Look at all that the Lord has done for me. Look what all the Lord has given to me. But if you read through Job's suffering and Job's trials and Job's testimony this morning, you'll find out that if Job hadn't gone through what he went through, if he hadn't experienced this great brokenness, he'd have missed an opportunity to greater understand who the Lord was and what the Lord could do. See, Job would go on later on throughout the book. You'd find out that through much pleading and dialogue with his friends, Job gains a greater understanding of who God is. He looks at his friends and they are telling him, Job, get right with God. God, Job, God is punishing you. Job, you just, you just need to give up and quit. Job, you just need to tap out. Job, you are done for. And Job says, hold on a second. You might be meaning well by what you're saying, but if you'll give me a second, here's what Job has learned through his trial. Job 19, 6, no, now that the Lord hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with it. He said, yes, God has allowed this to happen in my life. God has brought this into my life. And yes, it hurts. And yes, he has overthrown me. He said, but I fell into the safety net of God. He said, yes, he overthrew me, but he did not lose me. Job 23.10. But he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job said, oh yes, life was good on the other side of all the heartache. He said, but the Lord knows where I am and the Lord knows my heart and the Lord knows my desires. And he said, when I come to the other side by God's help, I will come shining forth as gold. Job 38, one, and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, what are you trying to say, preacher, if Job was never in the whirlwind? He'd have never known that God could speak in the midst of it beauty out of ashes. Job sitting in there, a broken man. But yet, through all of that, he learns that God is far greater than he could ever imagine. God is far greater than he could ever think or even fathom. Boy, could you imagine being there with Job? All that going on, there's the whirlwind. Job, 
I know that voice. I've heard that voice before. That's the voice that called me. That's the voice that saved me. That's the voice that changed me. Aren't you glad this morning that there is not an instance nor a circumstance that God's voice cannot penetrate nor can it not get through? God's word always works this morning. And can I say, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about the word of God in Bible college. I've learned a lot about it in Sunday school. I've learned a lot about it through the preaching of God's word. And I thank God for all those men and all those people that invested in all that. But can I say when the the storm was raging and the winds were howling and I heard God take his word and speak peace to my heart. I know that he can this morning. We see Job's understanding of who God was. We see Job's ultimate blessing. Job 40, verse number 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. You want to read that? God gave him back seven children. The Bible says that those daughters of Job were the fairest of all the land. We find Job broken in the ashes. But at the end of Job's life, you can almost hear Job testify. I'm so thankful that I went through it. I'm so thankful in the midst of my brokenness, God gave me something that was beautiful. Here's the beautiful statement Job would tell you. He said, this end of it is far better and this end, there's a whole lot more on the other side. If you'll just trust him, if you'll just trust the Lord, you'll just hold on to him and you'll trust his word, there's something better on the other side. Here's the thing. You may not have the double stuff like Job had, but you'll have a double understanding of who God is and what God can do. Let me ask you this morning, are you willing to trust that the Lord can bring you something beautiful out of the ashes of your brokenness? Notice number two this morning, we'll look at the ashes of bitterness. Take your Bibles turn to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13 this morning. There's Job and his brokenness. 2 Samuel 13, we'll learn about a little lady named Tamar. Who, to be honest with you, I really don't like talking about her account. It's not a it's not an action or account that that makes me excited. It's a difficult one. It's a hard one. It's great sin, not in Tamar's life, but that has acted against Tamar. This morning, look at 2 Samuel 13, verse 19. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. There's some counts in the Bible, this is one of them that makes me uncomfortable. It's not a, a, a subject or a thing that I enjoy talking about, let alone publicly. Let alone with younger ears in the audience. And can I say, when sin is present and sin is displayed before us, we ought not to ever call it entertainment. We ought not to ever take a sense of enjoyment out of it. And yet, one of the longest running shows on our televisions is a program that deals with something along these lines. I'd be careful what we call entertainment when we allow into our house. So preacher, why why would God allow this to be in the word of God? Why would he allow this to take place so that me and you can see that God can take the ashes of bitterness and bring something beautiful out of it? First of all, we got to realize this morning, Tamar is a victim. Tamar is a victim. We know the story. Her own brother, Amnon, goes unto her, forces himself upon her, doesn't act to her that is ungodly and not right. Tamar's a victim. 
Well, she would have been, stop, 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 stop. Can I say this morning, she was a victim of Amnon's wicked, sinful nature. And I believe if Amnon would have chosen his friends better, like we learned about at camp, if Amnon would have chosen his friends better, some of this probably would have been avoided. Jonadab, Amnon's friend, talks him into this. She simply went there to help. She went to feed her brother. She got permission from the king to go and do it. And he goes in there, and what he does to her is inexcusable and without reason. There is no line that you can draw and say, well, this was a good thing. This was something that was great that happened to Tamar. Can I say this morning, we're living in a day and age where the more normal thing to do now is not to confess our sins, but to excuse it. To excuse our sins. Can I say this morning, you'll never deal with sin correctly, nor rightfully, nor the way that God designed it to be dealt with, with excuses. Well, preacher, if they would just stop. Well, preacher, I mean, I'm just trying, if they would just straighten up, just stop. Take ownership of your own actions, confess them, and get them right. Tamar is the victim here. She has all of life in front of her. She's got great dreams. She's a daughter of the king. She's got a, a royal robe that signifies her pureness and her place and the promise. See, there was a great promise coming from the line of David. What? That the Savior would come through his line. Maybe Tamar thought, I'll be her. I'll get to be the one that carries on, that God uses to do that. But because of Amnon's actions, that doesn't happen. It's stolen away from her. We notice not only was she the victim, but verse 20 tells us that Tamar never fully recovered. She didn't just, look at verse number 20, chapter 13. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? Behold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother, regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her, her brother Absalom's house. She never recovered. She never fully recovered. We find her verse number time. She's got ashes on her. The ashes of bitterness. Of what she thought her life was going to be. And what she dreamed of. And in one moment it's all snatched away from her. Because of somebody else's sin. Can I say this morning if it hasn't happened to you yet. It may very well happen to it one day because of somebody else's actions. What somebody else does to you, there's something great stolen out of your life. And if we're not careful, if we don't deal with it properly, we will not allow God to bring something beautiful out of the ashes of bitterness. Can I say this morning, I have not yet to arrive. When people hurt me, it still hurts. When people do me wrong, I don't get excited about it. It hurts. Notice here this morning, someone could have told Tamar, you just need to forgive it, forget it, and move on. That's a line that we hear a lot. You gotta gotta forgive and forget. Understand God can. Understand that God has chosen to forget my sin and your sin this morning. But I'm not God. And though I can forgive, I'm like, I struggle to forget. I struggle to forget. But could you imagine if Amnon had walked back to Tamar and said, Tamar, you have to forgive me. You have to forgive me, Tamar. You have to forget it and you have to come and we have to be best buddies all over again. And I said, that's not wise counsel. 
That's not what forgiveness, matter of fact, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, you have to forgive me, you have to forget about it, and you have to do this, you have to do that, can I say they're not a spiritual authority, they are trying to manipulate you. We're getting deep on Sunday morning, aren't we? You just need to forgive and forget and move on. Sometimes that's a whole lot easier said than done. And here's the thing, I don't think Tamar could have forgot because of what was taken from her, what was stripped out of her life, removed out of it because of somebody else's actions. So preacher, what's the beautiful thing here? I don't see anything good. I don't see anything of worth in her ashes. Look at verse number 21. But when the king heard all of these things, he was very wroth. Preacher, what's the beautiful thing? When you and I are wronged, when that which we have desired to do, that which we want to do, is stripped out of us, not because we chose to sin, but because somebody's sin affected us and removed it out of our possibility, removed it out of our reach, removed it out of our realm, so to speak. Can I say the, the king knows about it? And the king sided with Tamar. The king didn't go and say, Amnon, it's all right. We won't talk about it. Won't deal with it. The Bible said he was very wroth. And he sided on the side of the victim. That's why the word of God says, let God be true and every man a lie. Can I say this morning, if you want to have the greatest defense, learn to let God defend you. He said, preacher, you don't understand. You don't understand, preacher. It hurts. They wronged me. I'm mad. I'm upset. I've had a great loss. Can I say, I, I may not understand completely, but I will say this. If you're a born again child of God, God is on your side. And the Bible says that vengeance is mine. Say the Lord, I will repay. Can I say, there is a day coming where all accounts will be settled. Everything will be set straight. I'm glad to be on the side of the king this morning. Listen, I may not get to do everything that I thought I ought to do because of what somebody else did to me, but I'm thankful when it's all said and done this morning, the king is on on my side this morning. The Lord knows what happened to you. The Lord knows what happened to Tamar. Can I say he's your defense? Can I say Tamar may have never fully recovered? She may have never completely got over what was taken to her and what was done to her and what was taken from her. But Andrew's name never got cleared either. He was never lifted up. Matter of fact, he didn't want to make it out in the next chapter before judgment is executed on him by his own brother Absalom. The Lord keeps perfect record. He knows who's right and who's wrong in every situation. Let 1 Peter 4.14 rule in your heart when you are wronged. If we be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are we. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Can I say this morning, God is on your side. Are you willing to let the Lord take your bitter situation and bring something beautiful out of it because he's on your side? We see the ashes of brokenness. We see the ashes of bitterness. And take your Bibles, turn to Numbers. I don't think I've ever said that while preaching since being the pastor. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers 19. We had a young man that was in our church a few years ago. We went to a youth meeting. And uh, he approached Brother Daxel Wells, missionary in Albania. And a young man was speaking to Brother Daxel, who's also a man. He looked at him, he said, uh, I, was, I was reading through uh, my Bible, and I, I can't remember the, the pickup line. He said, somebody, I realized I didn't have your number, is what he told Brother Daxel. And Brother Daxel said, did you just use a pickup line on me? 
And if I could have told the story right, it would have been funny. <laughs> but Numbers chapter number 19 this morning. The first two instances were pretty well known. We know about Tamar, we know about Job. But Numbers 19, there is an action and an act that takes place and there is a resulting ash. We looked, up, we looked at the brokenness of ashes and the ashes of bitterness. But number three, we're going to look at the blessing or the ashes of blessing this morning. Look at verse number one. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that you bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. He shall give it unto Eliezer, the priest, that he may bring forth, bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. And Eliezer, the priest, shall take her blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight. Her skin and her flesh and her blood and her dung shall, be, shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet, and cast it in the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh in the water. And afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water, and bathe his flesh in water, and shall be unclean until the evening. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, and lay them up without the camp a clean place. And it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation." is a purification for sin. We see here this morning that there was this act of sacrifice. There was this act of, of a burnt offering given unto the Lord. It brings about, when it's all said and done, it brings about a purification of sin. Those ashes are a great reminder that there is a great purification for sin. But we see here that there's some things that are required in these ashes to come about that we would say they're a great blessing. First of all, it had to be a specific sacrifice. You can't just go find any heifer. You had to go find a red heifer. But on top of that, it had to be a, a heifer or a female cow that was without spot or blemish. It had to be one that was perfect, one that a yoke had never come upon, had never been under the bondage of sin, had never been messed up by sin, where there is no blemish, where there is no spot upon which never came. Yoke, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Aren't you glad this morning that who died on the cross of Calvary this morning, he wasn't just another man, he wasn't just somebody, he just wasn't some God. He was the son of the living God. He was perfect, he did right. He never was under the bondage of sin this morning. He didn't have a sin nature. He was absolutely perfect. There was a specific sacrifice. But notice this, verse five tells us there was a complete sacrifice. Verse number five says, nothing was spared nor saved when the heifer was burnt. Every part from the head down to the hoof was burned and everything in between was burnt. They burnt the whole heifer. It required a complete sacrifice. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that we might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto him himself a peculiar people, zealous of good, aren't you glad this morning? Christ wasn't a halfway sacrifice. Christ wasn't three quarters of a sacrifice. He was the complete sacrifice. I'm glad this morning, I'm not looking for another sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was perfect this morning. It was a specific sacrifice. It was a complete sacrifice. 
Verse number six, it was a special sacrifice. Not every burnt offering looked like this. Not every burnt offering had these steps to it and had these parts added to it. Because verse number six said they added three things while the heifer was burning. They added three things. The first was cedar wood. It adds cedar wood to the fire. That cedar wood is a picture and a type of, uh, of, 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 of perfection. It's a picture of, because cedar wood in its, in its natural state is very, uh, very, what's the word I wrote down here? It's resistant to rot and disease. That's why they used to put it on top of the roofs, cedar-shaped ceiling or roofs and all that because it takes a lot of water to permit, but it'll last for a long time. It's a great wood to have outside to build furniture out because it, it, it lasts up to the elements. And so they would take this cedar and as a picture of Christ's perfection and Christ's eternal work, they would put that in the fire. But then they would grab the hyssop. The hyssop is a cleansing agent. We know about hyssop. That's what they would take in the book of Exodus, and they would dip it into the blood and put it over the doorpost and paint it on the doorpost. And when the, the death angel came through, those homes weren't touched. Those homes weren't messed with. It was used when they were dealing with lepers. They would take that salve and they'd place it on that hyssop and they would take that salve and they'd run it through the bodies of those lepers to help cure them. And here's the interesting thing. Hyssop, scarlet, and, hyss and, and cedar were all used in the cleansing of a leper. They would take that hyssop and they'd throw it in there as a picture of the, the cleaning agent and the, the cleansing of Christ's blood. Used to remove that which was bad out of the body. The cedar wood, the hyssop, then the scarlet. There's a red heifer. It's a picture of the blood. Then there was scarlet added to the fire. It's a picture of the blood of Christ as well. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 9, for as much as we know, we're not redeemed with Christ. Aren't you glad they didn't throw gold in there? They didn't gather up the silver and toss it in there. They didn't gather up all the coins and all the money and toss it in there. They didn't grab all the historical books and all the rolls of the family and throw it in there. They threw in the scarlet. Picture of the blood of Christ. For as much as we know, we're not redeemed with corruptible things. As silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As a lamb without blemish and without spot this morning. See, it was a special sacrifice. It was a perfect sacrifice. It was a complete sacrifice. It was a specific sacrifice. But notice verse number nine, there was a specific action that was taken. So they would come and once that heifer and all that was added in was burnt up, they would take those ashes. And they would take them to a spot in the city or outside the city. And there those ashes were mixed with the water. And in that process, that which was unable to be used, that which was considered unclean, when those ashes were mixed with it, now it was considered clean. It now had a purpose that it did not have before. And we realize this morning that in our Bibles, the water is sometimes used to explain and sometimes used in typology to remind us of the word of God. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And what, what I'm trying to get across to us this morning is that I'm thankful that Christ died for me. I'm thankful that he died on the cross of Calvary. I'm thankful that he went to Calvary, but I'm also thankful that it's recorded, that it's in the word of God. Because here's the thing, if Christ sacrificed himself and gave him himself and it wasn't recorded, how would we know? And what if all we had was God's word? But there is no mention of the sacrifice. 
Or if there was no word, how would we know about a sacrifice? We see here this morning, they work hand in hand. They work together this morning. And just like that, which was unusable when the, the sacrifice of the heifer was placed within it, now it was become usable. It sounds a lot like salvation to me. Before Christ, I had no purpose. Before Christ, I had no reason. Before Christ, I had no, no, no wherewithal to do anything. But the day that Jesus saved me, all of a sudden I realized I have purpose. I've got a reason. It is to glorify and to serve the living God. I'm thankful this morning that his sacrifice has made a change in my life. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Let me ask you this one. Have you trusted in the finished work of Christ as your payment for sin? Have you allowed God to take those ashes of blessings and apply that to your life to be saved by the grace of God? Only God can take ashes and give you something beautiful out of it. Only God can take ashes and for ashes give you something that we would say beauty. That's something magnificent. That's something wonderful. So let me ask you this morning, what are you going to do with your ashes? What are you going to do with your ashes this morning? You going to hold on to them? Or let God do something beautiful with them this morning? Let's all stand this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed.